This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Stephen J. Harper is an author and an adjunct professor of law at Northwestern University. In this time of COVID, he's made the effort to create numerous timelines related to the pandemic and its management, or more appropriately, mismanagement here in the United States. He's churned them out weekly since March, and we've read them all. If you've not read them all, dear listener, we advise you to do so in these last days before election 2020, and get others to do so as well, why don't you? They can all be found at BillMoyers.com. Five programs ago, we chatted with Mr. Harper, and we know we would want to do so again before the election. We fully agree with his most basic premises about the pandemic, which are that America will suffer a staggering number of injuries and deaths from COVID-19, and that there was no good reason for it to have happened the way it did. Some casualties were inevitable. Massive casualties were not. And the casualties are not diminishing. Rather, they are accelerating this fall thanks to the continued bizarre behavior on the part of one Donald J. Trump. The contagion Trump has tried so hard to downplay is a subject that keeps coming up in these final days of the campaign. The issue is front and center, sadly, and we must discuss it further. But at this juncture, so close to the election, the 800-pound gorilla in the room would seem to be the fears of many that A, the election will not be clean, B, Trump will not surrender power no matter the vote count, and C, the outcome may be determined by GOP state legislatures, operatives, and appointees on the U.S. Supreme Court. We need a law professor to sort all this out, and luckily we have one and can happily say at this point, welcome back to Radio Parallax, Stephen Harper. Thanks, Doug. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Your timelines have now taken a turn into an election analysis, which, of course, should lead our, our chat today, but I do want to start with the viral follies before we get into the election itself. <laughs> if it weren't so tragic, it would be it would be even funnier. Indeed. Uh, well, since we last spoke, somebody in the country got COVID. Donald Trump, along with a few of his uh, administrative operatives. I, I guess I'd like to start with your reaction to that. My reaction was the same as Dr. Fauci's, which is that he wasn't surprised at all. He behaved recklessly. He basically shamed people uh, who who wore masks. Uh, people who walked into the into his Oval Office were essentially cautioned to take them off. There was clearly a culture inside the White House that flowed from the top down with, with Trump. And you can see it. It's now living itself out through Mike Pence, who is violating all CDC guidelines, even though he was in close contact with his chief of staff and several others sure. who are now COVID positive. But, you know, if, I guess if you're an essential worker, and an essential worker is defined as, as spreading the contagion, then, <laughs> then, then I guess Pence qualifies. It's shocking. And, you know, what can you say? He, he comes out and he says he's stronger than ever. He's felt better than he ever did for 20 years, which, of course, I guess ought to cause us all to go out and try to find someone who has COVID and see <laughs> if we can get it from them. Never mind the million and a half dollars worth of medical treatment he got, apparently, in order to get the, uh, at least that's some of the, some of the calculations that suggest that, to get the quick result that he got. It's emblematic. It's just a continuation. You know, he cares about nothing but himself, and he'll take everybody with him. Yeah, three weeks ago, we had a man on the show who's about Trump's age uh, who, who got COVID. He had, he had quite a bit of a rougher go than the president did, but then he wasn't chopper to Walter Reed, given special antibody treatments and a remdesivir. So, uh, you know, when Trump advises the public to not let COVID dominate their life, well, that's, that's pretty easy for him to say. As more of this happens, I think people are going to 
really focus on this uh, to a greater degree. But even in the case of Trump, n- no one knows what the, the, the long hauler consequences of this are. But I have friends who, who had COVID and they recovered, and I put recovered in quotation marks. Months later, they're still having difficulty with fatigue. They're have, they get shortness of breath as they climb upstairs. There is a tail on this thing that is going to be devastating for years and decades to come. It's going to live itself out in, in the so-called survivors of this thing. So even, even in the case of Trump, you know, no one can know for sure, because, uh, of course, there was something, forget exactly what the phrase was that, that they used, expected consequences of his, in terms of lungs. Uh, right. I don't know exactly what that means. Well, no one does. It was very, too vague to know what that means. Right. And and if you couple that with Trump's continuing assault uh, that's going to come to a head, at least in in an initial phase, in the U.S. Supreme Court a week after the election on the Affordable Care Act and removing people from medical care, you're creating a a situation where literally millions of people with pre-existing conditions because they've been diagnosed with COVID, they're going to be at the mercy of medical insurance companies in terms of premium rates if Trump succeeds in the, in the Supreme Court. It's, it's such a multifaceted, I was going to say diamond, but that's really not what it is. It's a multifaceted piece of something uh, sitting in the middle of the room and, and stinking things up. <laughs> it's just unfortunate. Well, I'd hoped, I, I, well, I don't know, I didn't really hope very strongly, but I did have some hope that in the wake of getting COVID and, and recovering from it, that, that he might change his tune a little bit on some of this. But but by God, uh, Trump and his allies are singing the same song. They've, they've been singing since the pandemic got here. And and really, the, frankly, the bending of the truth is getting weirder than ever. They, they keep talking vaccines, though they're obviously not ready. Mark Meadows noted recently they're not even, they're not even trying to contain the epidemic. They're, they're just they're talking up a cure. And Trump said after this happened that we had a cure for it, basically. And this is just this is a fantasy. And it just it just goes on and on. Right. Today, uh, as we speak, they've just, the Trump administration, the Trump campaign has just listed the success on COVID as one of the great achievements of his administration. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Wow. That's, we're, we're way past George Orwell in 1984. We're, we're into, into a version of, of non-reality that is stupefying. And, and the thing that is actually somewhat disheartening to me is that, um, and of course, you, n- you never know, po- polls are always... Uh, a, a dicey proposition in any event, but it's still astonishing to me that there's still 40% of Americans who actually think this guy is doing okay, that, that he's actually, they approve of his of his performance as president, 40-some percent. Um, and that's that's just mind-boggling to me, just mind-boggling. Well, there was a lot of opposition to Trump a few years ago, but he does seem to have captured the Republican Party and the whole machinery that that supports him in this this infodemic and and in his politics in general. I'm astonished at the degree to which this stuff keeps getting churned out. Well, I was talking to a couple doctor friends recently, and I'm sort of amazed at what they're giving back to me. They're saying things like, well, you know, Biden... He's really got dementia. A fourth-year med student ought to be able to make that diagnosis. And I'd say, like, uh, and Trump? And they'd kind of look with a blank expression, like, what do you mean? It's a psychological phenomenon. We're all victims, I suppose, to some degree of our own confirmation bias, a selective perception, motivated reasoning, whatever you want to call it. Once somebody has a particular view of the world or of a situation, it is very, very difficult to shake that. And until it has a really personal impact, People just aren't prepared to let it through the filter. 
it's really astonishing. Just within the last few hours, but again, a, a, even as we speak, as they say, CNN got a hold of and has released uh, some tapes of Bob Woodward talking with Jared Kushner for his book, you know, uh-huh. with his book Rage. And Kushner was saying back in April, you know, we're taking control uh, of this uh, this pandemic. We're taking control back away from the doctors. We're going to be the open it up president. And and even Kushner, I think, used the phrase Trump has essentially completed his hostile takeover of the Republican Party. And that's exactly what it is. Uh, of course, it's not complete because he lost chunks of the Republican Party along the way. So it's a shrinking, you know, the, the ranks of the never Trumpers have grown. Um, I suspect there may be a couple more that have come out of the uh, the Rose Garden uh, super spreader event where he announced, uh, you know, Amy Coney Barrett as his new Supreme Court justice. But that's exactly what's happening. And I guess you and I talked about this a little bit last time, but, you know, the the German uh, historian philosopher Anna Arendt sort of spent a, a lot of her life trying to dissect exactly what went wrong and why in, in, in Germany during the 1930s? Why was it that Hitler had such appeal? And it's a, the answer is a very complicated one, but one of the important facets of it is that at the end of the day, it does come down to something akin to a cult in terms of your willingness to literally die for somebody. The fact that, these, that, that, that tens of thousands of people show up for these rallies, and, and today they're, they're reporting about how the, all of the people that they bust in, the elderly people that they bust in for it, his rally in Omaha were left stranded in the cold uh, without sufficient bus transportation to get them back to their cars. <laughs> it's like a death wish. It's like you, you have to be willing to ignore your own mortality in order to look past what he is doing. Well, you describe something like this, you know, and, and how, you know, you, you people are going to literally die. They're, they're, mess, yeah, they're leaving people out in the cold. On, on our website, we have uh, some graphs from someone, Dan, somebody, but his charts took some time to show for example, the red state, blue state evolution of this thing. And it's clear that the red states are exploding in COVID cases, whereas it's under good control in the blue states. And it just really brings home the fact that these people are following him to disaster. The closest analogy that I can think of is is Jonestown. But in that case, what's different about Trump is that Jones followed his followers, you know, by committing suicide. You know, he followed them into death. Trump will never do that. Trump's whole goal is to remain standing throughout all this. That's what makes my analogy to Jonestown incomplete or insufficient. I can't see Trump putting the gun to his head ever. Not a chance. That's what makes this election such a dangerous one, and it's why people are properly, I think, concerned about to what lengths is he willing to go in order to remain in power, because you know, once once he leaves office, if he leaves office January 21st, 2021, the statute of limitations will not have expired on a whole host of problems that are just waiting to land on him. And you don't even need to initiate new investigations to do it. You know, people are talking about, you know, should Trump be held accountable after the election? Should there be accountability? Should we, you know, is there concern about prosecuting a, a former president once he's no longer uh, a president. My answer to that is an unequivocal yes. You've got to cleanse democracy of what has happened over the last four years, and the only way to do it is to is for complete accountability of someone who has held himself repeatedly as above the law. He's got big time, big time criminal exposure, as well as civil exposure in, in lots of different uh, venues uh, all across the country, from being individual one in the Michael Cohen, Stormy Daniels uh, payoff to the porn star case prior to the 2016 election, to the attorney general looking into tax breaks that he got, 
a very long list of, of problems that he has, and he will not have what he has now, which is William Barr as his wingman and the Department of Justice as operating as his personal law firm. We're speaking with Professor Stephen Harper of Northwestern University about election 2020. Your last timeline details these things, and I want people to go take a look at it. I want to get in the nuts and bolts of this election, which, you know, is, is upon us now. Let's start with the mail-in votes. People are, are, are mailing in votes all over the country in record numbers, but I do think of how LBJ's one-time right-hand man, John Conley, once said when he was referring to how to manipulate elections, that you can vote them or you can count them. And people are voting them, but I guess the question is, what do you reckon the odds are Louis DeJoy and Trump are going to count them fair and square? If they get there by election day in just about every state, I think, Trump and DeJoy will lose control over the ability to count them because it's local election officials that actually do the counting. In, in that sense, I think if, if people who are, who are, for example, contemplating uh, trying to do something with a mail-in ballot by the time they're listening to this uh, broadcast, what they ought to do is look for something other than the U.S. Postal Service to get it there. Most states, you can deliver a ballot in person to an election official at, at a polling place, or you can go to the clerk's office, or you can go to a, a, a ballot drop box, make sure it's legitimate, because they were putting phony drop boxes in California. They sure were. Uh, unbelievable. Uh, actually, it's not unbelievable. It's, it's fully consistent with a lot of other things that happen. I would at this point, uh, as I say, when this broadcast airs, and by the time people are listening to this broadcast, I would do everything I could to deliver a, a mail-in ballot in person to an election official. Now, it's true that in many states, they can arrive later than Election Day and still be counted. Um, I think Ohio's an example where they'll, they'll, if, they get their, if they're postmarked and they get there by November 3rd, they'll still be counted for as much as, I think, 10 days later. I wouldn't trust any of that. If that's the only alternative, of course, you have to do it. But I would do everything that I could to, to get my ballot physically in the hand of an election official uh, who's going to then have the responsibility for counting it, and that means bypassing uh, Louis DeJoy in the, in, the, in the post office. You know, I had not thought to going to a polling place, say, on Election Day and handing over my ballot, but I think I might just do that. Well, you have to check. Each state is different. You know, some states don't do it. There's, there's a, in, in, my, in my latest uh, post that you referenced, there, there is a, a link that indicates, I think it was in the website 538, I think I linked to that. You can find information, and, and this is all state-specific, so people really need to look to see what they can do in their states. And it does vary by state. There actually is a state, I can't remember which one it was, but there's one state that actually will not accept a mail-in ballot if you try to turn it in in person. Uh, It has to be mailed. But in in most states, you can, in fact, uh, deliver it uh, to a polling polling place, an election official at a polling place. And I think what they do, I've never done this, but I assume that what they do is they, they check you in. If you do that, I think you also have to... Uh, you know, bring with you whatever papers came with the ballot. So that's the other alternative. You can sometimes you can take the mail-in ballot into the polling place and say, "Look, here's everything I got, but I want to vote in person." Um, and then they'll take the stuff. It really, but these are all really state-specific rules, and and I caution all your listeners, depending what state they're living in, to to go to the website for their state election officials and see what is permitted and what they can do to get their vote counted. We, on our show, plugged two documentaries that took a recent look at hacking the vote. One was Kill Chain, the other was Perfect Weapon. Uh, I thought I found them both pretty persuasive that Russian hackers and or other malevolent agents can wreak havoc on our vote count. Your timeline 
doesn't dwell on this very much. So I'm curious, how big a threat do you, do you see in that? That's sort of the big, the big open secret in a way, because Russia was doing that in 2016. The, the Senate Intelligence Committee, um, among many others, found evidence of, of Russia actually seeking to penetrate and actually succeeding in penetrating uh, many, if not all, of the, the state voting systems. But they sort of went in and, and took a look and then left. They didn't do anything, you know, according to, to what the Senate Intelligence Committee found in its, its report on this stuff. Trump has flooded the zone with so much other stuff, and COVID has taken everybody's time so that no one's really focused on that. But it's a, it's a real concern. You know, I've often wondered whether, at the end of the day, a bail-in ballot might not be actually in some ways more secure than whatever havoc outside interference might wreak on electronic voting. It's a, it's a scary proposition. And we know that at, at one level, we know it's fairly simple because they did it, for example, in North Carolina in 2016. Somebody messed up the online voter registration uh, stuff badly enough so that people were waiting in lines forever. They would come to the front of the line and they would say, well, you're not here. Go over there to a different polling state, uh, precinct. And then they would find there wasn't anything there either. So, so the potential to mess it up at the level of creating long lines and creating problems for people who are legitimately registered to vote, but for some reason their registration has been magically expunged. I, I was always concerned about that problem, and, and I don't have a good solution. The solution has always been paper ballots. Yeah, I mean, sure. But you've got, a, you got, a, you know, you got Trump. He knows he won because people were cheating on his behalf, whether you call it disinformation from Russia, whether you call it you know, coordinating dumps uh, of WikiLeaks materials that had been illegally hacked from the Democratic National Committee, whatever you call it. And so he's had no incentive for the last three and a half years to, to do anything but discredit any effort that would assure greater integrity of the vote. Because, you know, let's not forget, he lost by three million ballots. Yes. Uh, he won by 77,000 votes in, in three states um, and in the Electoral College. And that was that was all the difference. You're in a world where we're, we're, we're certainly more compromised than we, than we should be. And all you can hope about that is that the margins are sufficiently large that they leave no room for the kind of you know, fooling around that would, uh, would, tip an, would tip an election. Yes. One thing about those documentaries that uh, they did point out was that people think you have to go in and like, actually change the vote in the voting machine. But, but if instead, as you say, Russia or others got into the registrations, if, you, if John Smith of 122 C Street gets his address changed to 244 D Street and he shows up and there's a mismatch, then, then he's stuck. So that, that's another way that you can really make a big difference. Right. And the only, the only thing you can do at that point, if you're John Smith, is to fill out a provisional ballot. So of course, those all go to the end of, end of the line, and no one even looks at those unless the, the contest is close and so on and so forth. So you really have a limited remedy in terms of dealing with that sort of thing. Well, let's get into uh, what causes me to lose sleep, and perhaps you as well. This scenario that Tuesday night, the polls are all closed across the country. Trump takes a look and says, well, you know what? I'm president. If we look back at the election 2000, George Bush was called as the winner when he shouldn't have been, uh, thanks to Fox News and others. And everybody went to bed that night thinking that Bush had gotten elected, but they shouldn't have called Florida. Bush was able to really take that advantage all the way into the White House, I think, that, that, that there was the perception that night that he won. And I, that's what everybody fears Trump's going to do on election night. Yeah, and there, there are several levels of irony, of course, uh, one of which is that even Trump himself 
I don't think he was even declared the winner until November 4th. I think it was close right up until the, you know, after midnight on the 3rd. Sure. This falls to the media. I mean, it really is imperative more than in any other election for the media to avoid uh, quick calls. Because if Trump does it without the imprimatur of any major media calling the election on his behalf, it's, it's his words and, and much less likely, to, I think, to gain any traction. What should happen, and, and who knows? I mean, it's possible that there'll be such wide margins and they'll be so apparent either one way or the other that it'll be obvious that either Trump or Biden has clearly won. You know, if Trump clearly carries some otherwise blue state where there is not a significant, you know, mail-in voting presence, although, frankly, I can't even think of such a state at this point, or conversely, if if, if it appears that Biden has run up big margins in places where no one thought that he, he could ever be ahead on in-person uh, voting, then, then you don't have the issue. But the concern is exactly the one that you expressed, because more than half of Biden voters, when they were asked, said that they plan to vote by mail. More than half of the Trump voters, when asked, said that they plan to vote in person. What that means is that you could, just using the math, you could have Biden winning a landslide 10 percent of the popular vote and in and in all of the key battleground states and more but it wouldn't be apparent until several days after the election when you finished counting all of the validly and timely cast mail-in ballots on election night you could easily have a situation where based on the number of in-person votes and the votes that have been counted by mail which at that point will still only be a partial count where trump will have a, a lead that's the scenario in, in which Trump declares victory. And from then on, we're off to the races. It's chaos and bedlam for the next, who knows, two months maybe. I'm really glad you brought this up about network collaboration, because for 20 years I've been pondering how it was on, on election night 2000. Uh, a Bush cousin, hired by Roger Ailes to work in the Fox newsroom, declares that his cousin has, has now won the election, which was one thing, but all the other networks then piled on. And I'm just wondering, in the last 20 years, have they, have they separated out the networks so they're a little more independent of one another? Because they were all using the same source, supposedly, at that time. Well, all I can say is I hope so, although I have to tell you, um, it's pretty clear to me, you know, watching the major media cover Trump over the last three and a half years and, and even watching as they continue to cover him today, they haven't learned much from the 2016 election, you know, in terms of how to cover him, how to... You know, there are a handful of reporters that have done a, a very good job, you know, holding his feet to the fire, and he hates it. He hates that when that happens. He hates them when they do it. But by and large, you know, he still monopolizes the airwaves he has forever. His disinformation bullhorn continues to operate, and, and the, the media continue to cover it, although finally, you know, in the last several months with the pandemic, I think they are finally getting wise to him. But I just you just have to hope that they have enough awareness. It really doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if 50% of the votes have been mailed in and haven't been counted, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say, well, maybe we ought to see how those <laughs> come out. So it's like everything, right? It's, they're going for, for quick hits. They're going for, you know, it's more important to be first than to be accurate clicks if it's online, viewers if it's, if it's, on, if it's on TV. It's a news marketing as opposed to journalism. And we're all going to pay the price if they get it wrong this time. We're going to pay a very steep price. The good news is, I think, if there is some good news, and I think there is, is at least all of the pre-election polling is such to this point where you could say, boy, 
if Biden doesn't win, people ought to be taking a really hard look at why. Because I don't think we're at a point, you know, all the pollsters at least are saying, you know, we've made corrections, we're not going to make the kind of mistakes we made uh, in 2016. Although, if you look back, even in 2016, the mistakes weren't that great. They, they really got the margin about right, because um, Hillary Clinton did win by about the percentage that, that they were predicting going in. But they weren't, wasn't quite nuanced enough in terms of the individual electoral college uh, result. I do think, though, that if Biden continues to carry into the elec- into Election Day the, the pretty commanding lead that he has in not only nationally but in critical swing states that Trump has to win, then I think it's going to be much harder for people to accept uh, Trump's narrative, uh, if it turns out to be a false narrative, uh, that he's won when, in fact, he's actually lost. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We're speaking with Professor Stephen Harper of Northwestern University about election 2020, his many timelines about the COVID-19 pandemic and previous timelines about the relationship of Donald Trump and Russia uh, make him a bit of an expert that we're glad to have today. We left off talking about the manipulation of election 2000 and what that might mean and 2016. But on this program in, in the year 2004, we were watching very carefully for mischief in what might happen across the country. And, and I thought we found lots of it in the state of Ohio. It looked to us as though the Republicans basically flipped Ohio and flipped the presidency back to Bush, even though it wasn't legitimate. And that, that really concerns me. I hadn't really focused on that one, so you'll have to, to enlighten me on that one. We'll refer our listeners back to the shows we did back in 04, uh, talking about the statistics. Well, they kept saying the polls are wrong. There's a lot of talk in America about how we can't rely on polls in America, unlike every other nation on earth. And uh, they claimed at the time that, yes, it's true that John Kerry had a 3% lead in the exit polls, but by gosh, he wound up losing by 2.5% once they counted the votes. They did a mathematical analysis of of this and concluded there were three possibilities. One, it was statistical reality, the odds of which were 980,000 to 1. Uh, the other was that the vote count was wrong. The other was that the polling was wrong. Well, guess which one they chose? <laughs> that the polling was wrong. But it's possible that the actual vote count was wrong. That's that's my one sit, one paragraph summary. Uh, at some point, you, you have to you have to trust people to do their job. Part of the problem is it depends which state, right? Sure. And, and I think part of the problem that Trump is ha- has at this point is he has to win so many states where he is in such terrible trouble that um, it would take a massive effort across, I think, many different states in order for the, the, the totals to be flipped in a way that would discredit every single poll that has come out in those states. I guess that's not a scenario that I'm particularly concerned about. Maybe I should yeah. be, but I, that's not one that I'm particularly worried about. Well, not to beat a dead horse on election 2004, but at the time, in America, we had a 5.5% swing from the exit poll to the actual count, whereas over in Ukraine, there was a 10% swing, at which point the whole world said, that's a fraudulent election. I just thought, obviously, it means that you can get away with 55 but 10 is too much. Right, right. Well, you know, although you, if you go back to 1960, there are people that say that Richard Nixon probably would have won if there hadn't been a lot of uh, dead bodies in cemeteries casting votes. I guess to some degree, there's, there's, uh, there probably is some of this that continues to happen. You like to think that over time, we become more sophisticated in the way we go about this process, that, that that's less likely to happen. But I don't know. Who, who do you trust anymore? 
I don't know. Let's get into the really ugly part of what what Election Day may bring us. Um, you, your election timeline notes that you know a judicial resolution could loom. Uh, Bart Gelman wrote a great article in the Atlantic on this, and did so did Ed Kilgore in in NY Mag. All of you have studied it. Note that the GOP seems to have contingency plans in place already to bypass the popular vote in numerous states. The Constitution does allow a lot of rigor room for this kind of plotting. So can we review some of the details of that? Sure. If you start at the level of individual states, uh, the thing, I guess, that people lose sight of is that state legislatures actually select electors for the Electoral College, and those are the people who determine who the president is. So if you have a contested you know, say a closely contested race in a particular state. And if you have a, let's just, we'll use, we'll, we'll make Trump the foil, um, but let's assume you have a Republican legislature in a closely contested state, and the Republican legislature says, you know what, we think there have been shenanigans, problems, fraud, rigging, whatever you want to call it, whatever, uh, whatever people gin up. So we're going to throw out these ballots, we're going to take, we're going to credit this particular count of the vote. And if I use this particular count of the vote, Trump is the victor. So we're going to certify those electors as our electors from this state for the Electoral College. Now, in some states, the that certification comes from the, the governor as well. So if you get a Democratic governor, you get into a real mess, right? So because he could say, well, I'm going to certify this group of electors, and those happen to be Biden people. So then it goes from there into the House of Representatives, where a new Congress has been elected, and um, they have to decide which slate of electors to accept or to accept neither of them. It, it, the scenarios can play out kind of ad nauseum, and it's probably far deeper into the weeds than anybody, including me, cares to even think, and certainly no place anywhere <laughs> anywhere your, your listeners uh, are likely to want to traverse. Um, but the long and the short of it is there is, it, particularly in the scenario of the, of the close election in a, in a particular state, uh, for the presidency. There is a scenario that lands this thing in the House of Representatives, and it's not necessarily the case that what automatically happens is, in the case of a deadlock, the Speaker of the House becomes President of the United States. Yes, there are some unlikely scenarios we're talking about. It could be President Pelosi and with Biden and Trump all claiming, three people claiming to be president on January 20th. Theoretically, right. The last historical analogy to any of this is the Rutherford Hayes Tilden election uh, to succeed Grant. And in that case, Tilden was going to be sworn in. They had two competing, essentially two competing slates, if you will, each of which determined a a different winner for the presidency. As Tilden was about to be sworn in in New York, Ulysses S. Grant said, you know what, if if you do that, I'm going to declare martial law. So they cut a deal, the essence of which was, as I understand it, was essentially eliminate reconstruction, which was a of course, a terrible setback for the country, and Rutherford Hayes became president. Yes, I, I note that the secret deal that was cut in the case of the Rutherford-Tilden uh, debacle uh, was obviously influenced America for the next many decades, and yet we don't really, to this day, know the details of what, what deal was struck. It's, it's, it's disturbing. That's right. That's right. And uh, all we know is that at the end of the day, Grant did get the guy in that he wanted in. Now, what's different, of course, this time around, and what's even more frightening, is that Trump is the incumbent. If, you know, it would have been a, 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 imagine a situation where Grant had wielded that kind of strong arm 
uh, and what he was seeking to do was remain president of the right. United States for another term. I, I guess I'm, I continue to believe that we're we're not going to face those sorts of nightmare scenarios. Maybe I'm just being unduly optimistic. It doesn't hurt to think about it. It doesn't hurt to be prepared for it. Um, it's more important, I think, to be prepared for the rhetoric and the, the spin and the outright lies that Trump is likely to be throwing around after the election if it's close um, and if he loses, or even if it's not close and he loses. That's the thing that the American people really have to be prepared to, to withstand and say, no, you lost. We have a, we, we, we have a system and you lost. That'll be the test of, uh, of America. It'll be a test of the great experiment. Well, a lot of people, myself included, are quite disturbed at the fact that Mitch McConnell and the Republicans this week uh, basically ramrodded Amy Coney Barrett onto the Supreme Court. And, and a lot of folks see that as an insurance policy for a six to three vote in favor of, you know, whatever machinations Trump's team might perform to throw the election his way. And, and Barrett has made it clear she doesn't see any reason to recuse herself on the election. Can you talk about Amy Barrett? Yeah, this is an interesting question, right? The language of court packing always has always struck me strange in connection with accusations against uh, Joe Biden, because what's happened during the Trump administration is is literally court packing. So, um, what Mitch McConnell, because he was able to do it, because he had the the vote, control the votes to do it, was able to prevent an Obama appointee, Merrick Garland, eminently qualified for the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, from for over a year, from getting any consideration for the open seat left by Antonin Scalia, so that seat stays open, and Corsich gets it from Trump. Then we get Kavanaugh, and and then I don't have to tell anybody what happened next. And and here we are for the first time in history, you know, eight days or so before the uh, before presidential election, unprecedented. Amy Coney Barrett is is sworn in. Such a naked power grab. It's classic Trump. When he first was, was approached, right after he, after he won, and won the election in January, he had a news conference about his conflicts of interest. And I don't know if you remember, but he had, he had all these empty folders. He, had, he and his lawyers stood in front of the press conference with all these empty folders, but he said they were full of things that were his uh, signing off on not being involved in various aspects of his company and so forth. But he made a very telling comment there that I think... He really defined him, and and he said, you know, as president, I can't I can't have conflicts. There are no conflicts. He said, I didn't know that, but it's a good thing to have. <laughs> it's it's right. It's leverage. Everything is leverage. So anything he has, any tool he has, is leverage. So you saw that again, you know, in, in Amy Coney Barrett. I have the votes. It's a you know I have them. Why not use them? You saw the same thing when he blew up the filibuster in order to get Gorsuch and Kavanaugh nominated to the court. You know, why? Why not? What, what, you know, people talk about norms. Well, who cares about norms? You know, if you have the power, use it. And, and that's, the, that's the definition of Trump. So this is an angle that I think he's probably hoping that it's a close enough election that there'll be something for the Supreme Court to decide. And I guess we'll see what she will do is will be i suppose the ultimate test of her character you could say she's already failed that test because frankly any person of integrity and character who wanted to be on the supreme court would not have allowed him or herself to be uh, put on the court in, in these circumstances you know not in this way
Well, you're, you're an expert Trump watcher dating to your work on those Trump-Russia timelines. And I think we mentioned last time that you were not seeing any reason to believe Trump was going to relinquish power no matter what. And I, I imagine that your opinion hasn't changed on that. That's true. The one other thought I have that related to the Supreme Court, you know, there, there's been a lot of talk the last few days about what, what happened in, in the Wisconsin case where Justice Kavanaugh wrote a footnote that essentially embraced a factually incorrect view of the election and an extreme view of how the Supreme Court might be able to involve itself in it. And the long and the short of it is that what Kavanaugh essentially said in the footnote was to say everyone wants to have the election resolved on election night. People get suspicious if votes come in later and they get counted. Justice Kagan had the definitive response. Kavanaugh was concerned about flipping the election based on votes that came in later. And Justice Kagan responded in her own statement on the case, saying, there's nothing to flip until the votes have been tallied in the first instance. The notion that there should be a winner on election night, which is the sort of the, the implicit statement in Kavanaugh's uh, footnote, is just factually incorrect. And he, and he knows that because he and Amy Coney Barrett and Chief Justice Roberts were all on Bush's legal team for Bush v. Gore in 2000. And they know that there are states where the, the counting continues after Election Day. Kavanaugh knows that there are provisions in many states that provide for automatic recount in close cases, in which case the election's not over until that recount is completed. The election's not over until the board certifies a result, and there's nothing sacrosanct or magic about November 3rd or November 4th or November 5th. It's whatever each state decides is, is the point at which they can declare the election over is the point at which they then certify it, and at that point the election is over. The other, the other aspect, and then I'll just leave it alone, is that, and this is where, the, where people ought to be, I think, a little more concerned, is that there is a suggestion in, in Kavanaugh's footnote that if it was appropriate, the Supreme Court might well be within its rights to take a hard look at state Supreme Court determinations relating to what was appropriate and inappropriate under state election laws. And lawyers will recognize that as a, as a, as a red flag. Um, that was Justice Rehnquist's view in Bush v. Gore, and he couldn't get anybody but uh, Clarence Thomas to buy it uh, in 2000. Well, one thing your conversation today is really putting in very clear focus for me is the fact that I hope on election night the networks will refrain from saying who won, because they, they really won't be able to make that call on election night. No, that's right. And, you know, the other comfort that you and your listeners should take uh, is that Biden has assembled a first-rate legal team to go after a lot of this shenanigans that the Republicans and Trump are going to continue to try to employ in terms of limiting the vote and trying to make sure votes aren't counted and so forth. Uh, ultimately, as you correctly point out, if, if there's a a case that will make a difference and it makes its way to the Supreme Court. You can only do what you can do. But the Democratic team in this is absolutely first rate, the legal team. And it's not like there's only one, one set of warriors in this. Uh, there, there are warriors for democracy on, uh, on the Democratic side of this thing in a, in a very big way, and they've been very effective. We're speaking with Stephen J. Harper, professor of law at Northwestern University, about election 2020. Something we touched on last time was that uh, someone out there might 
conceivably prosecute Donald Trump for negligent homicide as to, as to relating what he's done with the COVID uh, epidemic. Some years back on this program, we had on the late Vincent Bugliosi. He wrote a book on how George W. Bush could be prosecuted for murder based on, on his behavior in, 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 in warring on uh, Iraq. He got nowhere with that, but he was he was serious about it. And, and I just want to bring it up again, this idea that uh, we're talking about the mismanagement of COVID. That's another perhaps legal liability for Trump. Yeah, that's one of those where you, you have no, you, you don't really have a serious, at least I don't have a serious uh, expectation that anyone will actually prosecute him for that. But it's, but it's, but it's happening in plain sight. When is a crime not a crime? Well, when, when people just decide that it's okay to do it, uh, I guess. Um, but, you know, if you look at just the legal requirements, um, it's hard to see how he, how he avoids, you know, checking all the boxes. He knows what he's doing. He knows it's reckless. He knows he's endangering people's lives. And he knows, we know, because he's gone to states. I think it was the Bemidji rally uh, a month or so ago. They've now traced, uh, you know, a couple of dozen cases there. You've got Herman Cain in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You've got other people in, I think it was in Wisconsin. He's a walking super spreader. If he were anyone else dropping poison in, into people's water, he'd be behind bars, right? It's not that it's really a fanciful notion. It's just one that it's so, so remarkable to contemplate that you would prosecute a president of the United States for this, because you can't imagine a president being so reckless as to behave in that way, that people just then just sort of, well, I, I guess that'll never happen. Let's move on. And of course, that's what Trump always counts on. He counts on people moving on. He, that's, he, Steve Bannon called it flooding the zone. You put so much stuff out there that nobody can begin to deal with it. The news media will pick up the shiniest object, and and some really bad stuff's gonna gonna keep sliding, you know, all the way through. And the next thing you know, you're you're logging in Yellowstone National Park. Well, one little factoid I'd like to insert at this point it was something that had a friend of mine's draw drop early this morning when I mentioned it was that. Al-Qaeda in 9-11 killed 3,000 Americans. And we're we're losing that now largely due to Trump's bad behavior every three days. That puts it in perspective. Yep, that's exactly right. How would this country be reacting if instead of, you know, people just quietly dying in hospital beds or at home, hospitals were being blown up with 1,000 people in them every day? I guess you need something spectacular to get people's attention. You need something spectacular to, for people to think that something is wrong here, uh, or at least for some people to think that something is wrong here. It's also the case that if you go back, I, I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, when I was a uh, kid, you know, and, and, and I'm in my 60s now, my grandparents didn't talk about the Spanish, you know, the Spanish flu of 1918, the influenza, but you know it had to be a big part of their lives. My My grandfather that point would have been 13 years old. My grandmother would have been, I think, nine or 10. I never heard a word about any of that stuff. So maybe it's just some weird psychology associated with, with flus. Although I, I really do continue to believe that until it affects you personally, it just doesn't hit home. And for some people, even if it hits them personally, as you said earlier on, the case with Donald Trump being you know, case number one, even if it hits you personally, hurts your wife, hits your kid, doesn't matter. This doesn't matter to some people. I don't know why that is. The fact does remain that if you look at the basic numbers of the polling data, you look at what the Electoral College shows, there's lots of evidence we're heading for some sort of blue tsunami and that Joe Biden should win this thing in a walk. If he does, if he does and we don't have to worry about any of this and it's, it's, it's a landslide and it can't be stolen, what do you want to see happening between now and Inauguration Day and beyond? 
I would like to see the Biden campaign as president-elect uh, issue a memo to the entire executive West Wing uh, asking them to preserve all documents, emails, and other <laughs> memos and correspondence. They yeah. should hang on to everything because I think there'll be bonfires and shredders going <laughs> crazy all over the administration. I, I, guess, I guess I yearn for boredom. I, I yearn for being able to sort of wake up and 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 have some confidence that there's a president who is actually willing to trust science, uh, that there's somebody that's actually thinking about the fact that maybe it's more important to 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 try to try to do something to get control of the virus now, so that you know people in two or three months or four months can resume something that looks more like a normal life. This is all going to catch up with the market. It already is. People have said repeatedly, you know, controlling the pandemic is the only sound economic policy. And in the long run, that's certainly true. And I guess I would just like to see some restoration of character, integrity, civility, call it whatever you will. Uh, my fear, and I hope I'm wrong about this, but my, I do have a concern, even if Biden wins by a significant margin, there'll be continuing pockets of Trump loyalists, big pockets. And I don't mean just in the government. I mean, you know, among the populace, in a sense, that refuse to give up on him. If he mounts Trump TV, uh, they start touting him as the front runner for the nomination in 2024. You know, I think that that's a real possibility. We'll worry about that another day, right? We'll sure. have that interview another day. But I hope I'm not alone in this. But I think people just yearn for leadership that allows America to be respected in the world again, that allows people to feel like there's somebody on their side trying to get the country healthy physically and psychologically. We certainly, from where we are at this moment, have better days ahead. We may be a ways away from what have been our best days in the past, but we have to have better days ahead. Well, as we wrap up today, I did want to take the time to ask you about Bill Moyers. He has a great site, which you're a part of with your with your timelines, and, and Moyers has certainly seen it all over the years. And, and I'm wondering, do you have any sense of whether he's fearful of Election Day? I haven't talked to him about it. I know that he's a, like I, he's, he's you know, it's not, this, is, this is something that just transcends party politics. And the reason he runs his site, you know, you can tell it's, uh, you know, the democracy is sort of the, the banner of his site. And I think he is one of, those, one of those increasingly rare individuals that has a sufficient perspective of all that has come before us to know that we're in an important time and um, that it is important for the country to get it right. And, and, I, and I think at the end of the day, I don't know, I can't speak for him, but I think at the end of the day, he's optimistic that we will. Glad to hear that, actually. As we wrap up, I guess my final question, we've covered a lot of ground today. Is there anything else you would like to add or, or just expand upon? No, I don't think so. No, you, you, hit all the, you hit all the high notes and, and all the low notes. I think we've covered the, the entire range. Well, if it's the best case scenario, I'd still like to talk about uh, what you know about uh, Trump and Russia. And if we're in the middle of a big mess, then we need a law professor to come back and talk about it. So we'd like to extend the invitation next month to have you come back if, if you've got the time. I'd be delighted. Our guest has been Stephen J. Harper, adjunct professor of law at Northwestern University and author of dozens of valuable timelines, which you can and should find at BillMoyers.com. Thank you for your time, Steve. Thank you. Appreciate it, Doug. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. This has been Radio Parallax. Please tune in next week and after that. I'm Douglas Everett. We will see you then.